you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Matthew chapter 3 today. Last week and this week, between last week and, and today's chapter, if it feels like it's been a really long time, well, that's because between 20 and 30 years have passed. Between um, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we've seen last week the, the birth of Jesus Christ, um, the, the story of his birth, the wise men coming. We tore apart your nativity scene a little bit because Joseph and Mary were living in a house. And because the, when the wise men came, Jesus was not a little baby in a manger. And, and then the wise men left. And, and Joseph was warned in a dream that Herod, the madman, when the wise men didn't go back to have his son f- and take his son and flee to Egypt. And as they did that terrible atrocity in history, Herod commanded the Roman soldiers to go into Bethlehem and on the end of a spear to kill all the babies two years old and younger. And Jesus escaped that as he went into Egypt. Now, he wasn't. So we don't know. And then the very um, end of of chapter two, Jesus comes back out of Egypt into where he grows up into Nazareth. Now, what's interesting is Joseph probably had some ties in Nazareth where he wanted to be in Nazareth because Egypt is in the far south on the south border of Israel. And Nazareth is towards the north of the country Israel. So he would have come in through the south and had to travel all the way to the north where Jesus grew up. And that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But he's from Nazareth, grew up in Nazareth, spent in Bethlehem possibly two years fled to Egypt. It doesn't tell us how long he was in Egypt, but let's say he was there for two or three years while Herod dies and everything clears up. And then they head from Egypt up to Nazareth and Jesus is five when he gets there. Then this, by this next verse of chapter three, Jesus is now 30 years old. So we would have a 25 year gap between chapter two and chapter three. And in chapter three, we meet John the Baptist. And it says in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And so the wilderness of Judea is just north of the Dead Sea along the Jordan River. Now, John the Baptist, as we know, um, was the greatest of all men leading up to the, the, the New Testament. So turn with me if you real, real quick to Matthew chapter 11. I want to share with you a little testimony about John the Baptist and something that's always been a little a little difficult for me to um, receive. I would say understand, but I think I understand it pretty clearly. But I think I have a more a harder time um, uh, receiving it, accepting what what it says here in Mark chapter or in Mark, Matthew chapter eleven. But Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, he said, "Assuredly, I say to you, in verse number eleven of chapter eleven, assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been." has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Jesus said, yeah, amen. Well, what if Jesus said that about you? I think he says that about my wife, but I'm not sure about any of the others of you. But he said, of all those born of women, none greater than John the Baptist. How many of you guys keep a, a red letter Bible? Is that Jesus talking there? So Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist and gives a testimony that none greater than John the Baptist. But check it out. He's not done. What does he say next? But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he who's least in the kingdom of heaven. You're not sure. Raise your hand. Yeah. 
Yeah, me, you, us. And so the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. How is that? Why is that? Well, he says in verse um, 13 or 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent have taken force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So, so basically, as we've shared already, John the Baptist marks the end of the Old Testament. Even though we find John in the New Testament and we read about him in the New Testament and there was a 400 year gap of silence between Matthew and the last book of the Old Testament, that white page on your Bible, for 400 years God didn't speak. He didn't bring word. He didn't bring spoken word. He didn't bring written word. He didn't bring prophecy. Just 400 years of darkness and of silent years. And yet John the Baptist, the Bible tells us here, and Jesus said, he's the last of the Old Testament saints. I often say that God had to draw a line in the sand somewhere between Old Testament and New Testament folks. And the line that he drew was with John the Baptist. But you and I are, and John is the greatest, and you and I are greater than John the Baptist. How does that work and why is that? Because we have the Holy Spirit of God in us. And as we studied in Colossians last, last week where, where Paul, the apostle, says the hope of glory, this Old Testament um, mystery that Paul reveals in Colossians that is Christ in you. What is it? The hope, the hope of glory. And because you're filled with the Holy Spirit and the least of you who's filled with the Holy Spirit and who has this New Testament revelation that the Old Testament saints didn't receive, that God was going to die on a cross. He was going to go um, ascend to heaven and the Holy Spirit was going to come and remain here and that God was going to pour out his spirit upon and in all flesh. And those of you that are born again, spirit-filled believers in Jesus Christ, you're greater than John the Baptist. Amen? Amen. So then he says in verse, uh, still in 11, Chapter 11, we're talking about John the Baptist. For all, um, verse 14, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who will come. He who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says. But to what shall I liken this generation? It's like the children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute and you did not dance. I should put that up here. That should be our church verse sometimes for during worship. I played the flute, but you did not dance. I mourned to you and you did not lament for John neither came eating or drinking. And they say he has a demon. Jesus came or the son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified in her children. And so, you know, Jesus was saying basically in that in that context that you're never happy. John came walking a really tight line, a really tight rope and walking a really straight line. And you weren't happy with him. And, and then I came and, and John neither ate nor drank. And um, I, I both ate and drank and hung out with, with regular people. And you accused me. You said John had a demon. And you said that I was a wine bibber and a glutton and a friend of sinners. One of Jesus' greatest compliments, by the way, that the Pharisees meant to be a, um, a dig on him. But they were never happy. So if we go back to Matthew chapter 3. Now, the story of John the Baptist is that, as you know, John the Baptist's father's name was Zechariah. 
And Zechariah was a part of a rotation of priests. So there was lots of priests that would rotate through the duties of the temple. The same temple that Jesus overturned the tables in. The same temple, the Solomon's temple that was there in the day. And then um, when it came to the duties of going in to the Holy of Holies, they would cast lots and only one high priest once per year would do those special duties. Well, this particular year, the lot fell on Zechariah. And he would have been one of 24 qualified priests at that moment. That, and, and the lot fell on him. Well, that particular day when he shows up in the temple, there's Gabriel, the archangel, who's in there waiting for him. And Gabriel tells him, you're going to have a son. And, and John doesn't believe, or I'm sorry, Zechariah doesn't believe Gabriel. And Gabriel doesn't take too nice to that. So he strikes Zechariah with dumbness. And he can no longer talk or speak. And it's not until, so can you imagine him coming out of there and trying to communicate to his wife that, you know, his, he's going to have a, that she's going to have a baby, first of all. They're, they're well advanced in years, the Bible says. It's like an Abraham and Sarah story that Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah are well advanced in years. And now he's got a sign. He's got to write it to her. She doesn't know what's going on, that she's going to get pregnant. Now tell, tell a woman that age she's going to get pregnant and see how that goes over. And then you don't have words to do it. So anyways, he's, their name is John. And when John is going to be born, the, the people said, what will you call him? And she said, his name will be John. And they said, no. And they came to Zechariah and they said, um, nobody in your family is named that. And that doesn't make sense. It's not cultural. It's not traditional. You're not going to name him John. Nobody in your family is named that. And he took out a pad and he wrote, he shall be called John. And from that moment on, his tongue was loosed and Zechariah was able to speak. And then you'll know when um, Mary became pregnant with Jesus. You remember the story. Mary um, went. Where did Mary go when she was betrothed to Joseph and disappeared for a while and came back showing and pregnant? She went down to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, who was her cousin, was six months pregnant when she got pregnant with Jesus. And you remember the story as Mary came in, Elizabeth said, who am I? that the mother of my Lord should come and visit. And the babe jumped in my, leaped in my womb when, when he heard your voice. And so John the Baptist, from birth, just at the voice of Mary, began to leap in Elizabeth's womb. So Jesus and um, John would have been cousins, or technically second cousins, because Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. And so Mary and Elizabeth, and then Mary and Elizabeth lived, I'm sorry, not Mary and Elizabeth, Zechariah and Elizabeth lived kind of in the southern part of Israel, or more south, more towards Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And then Nazareth, where Jesus' carpenter shop was and where his family lived, was up by the Sea of Galilee in the north. And so no doubt Jesus and his family would have traveled to go um, to, to pilgrimage. We know uh, Matthew's gospel doesn't record it, but we know from the other synoptic gospels that when Jesus was 12 years old, he was there. So no doubt John and Jesus would have had a relationship as cousins. And, and, John, and John, no doubt, would have already known how perfect Jesus was. You know, and this I got, well, I got this cousin, man. He could not do anything wrong, you know. But I'm sure John was a, was a straight shooter, too. But Jesus was so trusted. You know the story. They, at the one he went at 12 years old. His parents went down to Jerusalem for Passover. And they making their journey back to Nazareth. And they get a certain distance away. And Mary says to Joseph, hey, you got G- Jesus, right? Joseph says, no, I thought you grabbed him. And they don't have him. How many of you parents have ever left your children? Come on, y'all. 
I, uh, you younger parents are like, yo, no, we would never do that. Well, give it some years. You know, the good one, the easy one is at church for Lydia and I, you know, because we drive two separate cars to church and who knows where the kids are and they're always running around. And there's been, I think, probably more than once where we've gotten home and, and, and Lydia's like, are the kids with you? And I said, no, I thought they went home with you. So I jump in the car and I come back and I don't remember which one it was, Caleb or Nathan sitting on the wall there and, um, crying, you know, you left me. No, I didn't leave you, man. I was just in the back of the church. No, you left. You forgot me. I didn't forget you, man. I didn't really. Well, you know, Jesus was was so well behaved that they didn't even think twice. They never had a problem with him growing up, never one. And he always did what he was supposed to do and was always was where he was supposed to be. And so, you know, they took off and headed home and he wasn't there. But no doubt on those trips and on the different excursions and the fact that Mary, you know, her first thing that she wanted to do when she got pregnant was to go visit Elizabeth, that the cousins, Jesus and John, they would have known each other um, as young people. And so that brings us to verse number two of chapter three and saying, so I'm going to start from the beginning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you've ever seen the wilderness of Judea, I almost brought a picture, but I didn't get it up. But you talk about a wilderness, the desert where I moved here from Yucca Valley, the desert, the high desert, you know, the Judean wilderness makes Yucca Valley look like a tropical paradise. The Judean wilderness is absolutely barrenness, nothing green, rocks and sand and mountains and hills. And, you know, you can look it up later. The Judean desert is nothing there. And this is the place where John chooses to go baptize. And John's first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to to share with you guys something that's look at verse number 17 of chapter four. You probably don't even have to turn the page now. Jesus had to be 30 years old before he could become a rabbi. That's Jewish culture and custom to this day. And here in the United States and a lot of places in the world, we say that, you know, you're an adult at age 18. Well, in Jewish culture, they're smarter than we are. And they realize that at 18 years old, you're still a dumb kid and that you haven't matured and 21 is no better. And so in order to be an adult in Jewish culture, you have to be 30 years old. That's when you become and receive adulthood to this day um, where you become adult. And so um, Jesus waited until he was 30 years old. He had to be water baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, tempted by Satan. And when those things were completed, then he left and he would begin his um, earthly ministry. You know, there's movies which... Again, they pull them out of a hat, and and I think you have to be careful with them. But there was one that I watched recently, and it was supposed to be a story of Jesus as a little boy growing up in Nazareth. And he, like, saves the world as a little boy with his Jesus powers. And, you know, he's doing miracles, and, you know, he's he's at the playground playing, and, you know, a dove crashes, and he goes over and he grabs the dove, and he heals it, and he throws it up, and it's three doves. And, you know, while he's healing it, he might as well make a couple more, you know, and... Um, but yeah, I don't think so. Like, you know, we, first of all, we don't get any records of that. We, we know he had an amazing intellect at 12 years old. He told his parents, don't you know, I must be about my father's business, but he lived a normal life. And for good reason, he had to live a sinless life. And in order for Jesus to complete that, he had to live the law of Moses to the T. 
He had to follow the law of Moses and not break one jot or one tittle of the law of Moses. So he was the only one in human history that managed to live until 30 years old without ever breaking the law of Moses. So at 30 years old, Jesus has gone through this entire life and these procedures to where now he is set free. He's, he's there. And in verse 17, we have the first act that Jesus did, does and says in his earthly ministry here on earth. And what is verse 17? What did Jesus say? And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was John's first word that we just read in that last chapter? Repent. Jesus's message, John's message, Jesus's first words. And whenever you have first mention in the Bible, you always pay attention. Your antennas go up. It's something that there's emphasis placed on from the Holy Spirit in your life and my life. And there's emphasis that God wants you to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn from your sins. It means to turn 180 degrees and go the other way. You know, everybody in jail is, is repentant. But they're not repentant in a true sense. They're sorry they got caught. But they're not sorry that they did it. They're not sorry that it broke the heart of God. There's a difference. Jackie said um, that to the, ki- to the Sunday school teachers yesterday and teaching the kids that repentance and confession, because repentance starts with confession, is tattletelling on yourself to God. So just tattletale on yourself to God. The things in your life that, that are sin, the things in your life that um, separate you from God, you tell the Lord that. You confess those as sin. You ask God to forgive you. You repent and, and you don't do them anymore. You know, in book of Revelation, Jesus writes a report card to seven churches. Chapters two and three are the seven letters to the seven churches. In all seven letters, Jesus um, gives a compliment to some only compliments, to some no compliments, to some churches, a little bit of compliments and a little bit of correction, a little bit of rebuke. But to all seven churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus tells every one of them to repent. And we find the Siamese twin of repent in the New Testament you know, like Paul's um, peace and grace, like the faith and love. The Siamese twin to repent in the New Testament is repent and believe. So not only do you turn from your sins, but you cling to the Lord in believing that God um, has done it and that God's going to do it in your life. So we repent and believe. And that was John's, uh, John's message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then it says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his foot was locust and wild honey. So we have a, I get every day of my life, I get an email or two from some firm, some outfit that um, wants to help us as a church grow. There's one that's called 24 to double. There's one that's called, uh, uh, I forget, I, was, I called it the Barna Group, but I think it's close to that, but it's not the Barna Group. That's something else. But over and over and over again are all of these church help programs. And not to say the folks that have done that for a lot of years don't have maybe some wise things that, that, that make sense, right, in helping us. But they tell you like location. They tell you um, certain aesthetics. They tell you certain things to do that, that will attract and help your church grow and I guarantee you that if they looked at John the Baptist, he would be failing miserable. They would tell him no one's ever going to come to your church. You don't dress well. 
You don't have on, you know, a nice pair of jeans and, and Jordans. You, you, you have the wrong dress. You, you have a terrible location. John could have easily went to Jerusalem where the people were and, di- and done his ministry there. John goes to the Judean wilderness in the worst spot in the Jordan River. In this particular spot where Jesus was baptized, we went there last year. As a tour group, it wasn't opened. Israel hadn't opened it as a tour site for a lot of years. So we, we knew we weren't being baptized in the actual authentic place that Jesus was baptized. But we were being baptized near there in the Jordan River. But we would go to this beautiful, warm water tributary of the Jordan River near Engedi, And, um, you know, we would swim afterwards. And there would be waterfalls and places to dive. And you'd lay in the waterfalls and take pictures. And that's where we would do our baptism in Israel. Well, now this last year we went to, they've opened up the, the actual place where John was baptizing and where Jesus would have been baptized. So if you get a map and you see the Dead Sea, you'll see the the um, Jordan River leaving the Dead Sea out of the north. It's actually coming in, but going out and, and where it'll touch the Sea of Galilee. Well, just about that far on your map above the Dead Sea is where John would have been baptizing. It's very near the place because you'll see Jericho is very close to there where Joshua led the nation of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land where they would have landed in Jericho and their first conquest was in Jericho. But in this place, the water is freezing cold. The, the, The Jordan River is a little faster moving there and it's muddy as the Mississippi. And I'm not kidding. You should see the pictures. And we, we did baptisms in it. And so you are covered from head to toe with dirt in every crevice and every part of you by the time baptisms are done. The water is freezing cold and the pastors have to stand in the water until the whole tour group comes through and gets baptized. And then we had to have extra guys down in the water because it was just not a good spot to do baptisms with the water moving and with, 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 with all those things going on. So this is the spot that no nonsense John the Baptist picks and he goes there. Not like, you know, he went to this place and chose it. And this, these, you know, these church growth groups say it'll never work. But what does verse uh, five say? It says, then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, they went out to John. They went out to him. So, so he didn't care. They came anyways. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to to him, his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Can you imagine if we had an altar call and I just started telling you snakes, who warns you to flee from the wrath of hell in your life and come up? No, we don't do that nowadays, huh? We beg you guys and we sing, come just as you are. Oh, come. And we have the worship team play it again just in case there's anybody else. And then we say, oh, please come. Come to the altar. Not John, man. John did not mess around. And, and he wanted it to be authentic. He wanted it to be real in your life. I can remember one of the, um, as a young person, a young believer in Jesus, um, one of the, the, the altar calls that I attended, and I was already a believer. And I didn't necessarily go forward. Um, but it really moved me. And it was a guy named Miles McPherson. He's a pastor now, and he used to have a, a, a crusade called Miles, Destination Miles Ahead. And it was primarily to young people, you know, people that were 15 to 25. And so I'm there, I'm in that age group, and, you know, and Miles McPherson, and we're in San Diego somewhere in a b- pretty big indoor arena, and he gives an altar call at the end. 
And he says, but don't come up if, if you don't mean it. And don't come up if it's fake. And don't come up if you don't understand that you're coming to give all of your life to Jesus Christ. And he's just like talking people out of it. And he's telling them why they shouldn't come. And don't come if it's fake. And don't come for the wrong reasons. But, you know, only come. And <clears throat> all these kids just kept coming and coming and coming. But it felt so good that y- you came for the right reason. And you knew what you were coming for. And that was John's deal. I believe John had a heart. He wanted to prepare the way for Jesus. But he, he wanted to make sure that it was real. And we could, we could give lip service to the Lord. And you can say you love the Lord. And you can come forward in an altar call. And you can claim Christian knees and Christian walk. But John wasn't having it. And what John said in verse 8, he says after that, he says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And that's something that I quote all the time. I tell people all the time, listen, for you in your life, I want to quote it for you this morning. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. I'm talking to everybody in here. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. What does that mean? I tell you guys all the time, well, not all the time, but an illustration it always sticks with me. There was a, a, a girl that was in a church that I was involved in and in my life and uh, we would meet together with other young people in a group very regularly, and we would pray to start the day. And this particular person would always pray, oh, Jesus, I love you so much, Jesus. Like we're playing in a group, first of all, like you don't need to be praying for yourself in our group, like pray for somebody else. Oh, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. I love you a lot. You know, I love you, Jesus. And that would be her prayer. And then and then I would watch her life and I'm like. How you say you love Jesus? What are you doing that for? Like that and that don't go together. And it would frustrate me. Like, and I, and I, don't, I wasn't judging her for having some struggles in her walk. Like, it's okay, like to have some struggles in your walk. But to me, there was just, just, she wanted everybody to think she was so spiritual and so holy. And I'm like, you know, I got nervous from this experience where I don't, you know, wouldn't say I love you to Jesus for my prayers for a long time, lest I, I play the role of the hypocrite. But the point being, if there's a profession of faith in your life, John says to these guys, listen, you show fruits worthy of repentance. Like there'll be some evidence in your life that you're born again. There'll be evidence in your life that you really have turned from your sins. And, and people will see it and people will know. You know, we're, we're told as Christians two things. And they're they're right back to back in the Bible. The first thing Jesus told you as a Christian is do not judge. Second thing he said to you was judge. Do not judge. And then right after that, he backs it up and he says, you better judge. Okay, so there's a right and a wrong way when you unpack it. And he said, don't judge with an unrighteous judgment. And we're never to judge anybody's salvation. But you are to judge character. How, How can you live your life? as a believer or a non-believer or anybody where you don't make righteous judgments in your life about decisions and things that you have to do and friends and people. And, and, and we make judgments every day, all day. And, and God says the one thing for us that we judge, that we're allowed to inspect, is the fruit in other, in other believers' lives. And look, it just happens. I see it with the 12 guys, the 24 guys that have signed up, have been spending the last 12 weeks with 16 weeks at men's discipleship. Like, they don't have to come in and and tell me, man, you know, I'm really growing in Jesus. I love Jesus a lot. I love you, Jesus. Like, they don't have to come in and and tell me what's, I could just, I can tell, I can see, we can all see, we can feel. You just know, and you can see when people are growing in Jesus because the fruit is evidence. And that's what John is talking about. 
Show fruits worthy of repentance. Quit giving God lip service. You're doing yourself no favors. Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Do you know what the wrath to come is? Ultimately, it's hell. Hell is a hot place. You don't want to go there. It's hot there. I'd much rather go to heaven. It's going to be hot there too, but a different kind of hot. You know what I mean? It'll be hot up in heaven. But the, there, there's fruit worthy of repentance. And then in verse 9, he says, And do not think to say to yourselves, for we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these very stones. Now listen, they, they were ready to play a race card. And, and uh, John the Baptist is preaching it right here. Who warned you, you brood of vipers? Show fruits worthy of repentance. And then he says to them, and don't you dare try to play that race card on me. It's not going to work. It's not going to fly around here. God could raise up sons of Abraham from those very rocks. He don't need you guys. And John is basically telling them because they believed. And one of the things they battled, one of the things Jesus would eventually go on in battle was, was a Jewish idea and concept that they were going to heaven just because they were Jewish. They were ethnically saved regardless how they lived their lives. They were sons, and literally they were sons of Abraham. Do any of you guys believe that about yourselves? I don't think we have that problem today. Well, I'm going to heaven because I'm Italian, okay? I'm Italiano. I go automatically to heaven. I'm Sicilian, you know? Like we, I don't know. I don't run into too many people that think they're going to heaven because they're Sicilian or something. Like, but the Jews did. Although Texas, now that could be a little different. I just got back from Texas. I'll tell you what, people from Texas are crazy. People in Texas, they, they literally believe they're going to heaven because they're from Texas. Are you a Christian? Well, I'm from Texas, ain't I? Everything in Texas is bigger. I've never seen so many state flags and Texas-shaped waffles and pancakes and steaks and houses and colors and flags. And we love Texas. Man, until you go to Texas. And they, they definitely think they got a leg up on everybody if they're from Texas. Lydia and I had a, a, a friend of ours, a couple, great, wonderful couple, loved him to death, um, in our couple's Bible study back home. And the first day of class, we get all the couples together, and there's like 18 couples there. And, um, and we go around, and everybody takes a few minutes on the first night, and they introduce themselves, say a little bit about themselves, maybe how they came to know the Lord how they got saved. And, and so the wife started first and she said, well, I'm from Texas and this and that, and we've been married for this long. And, um, you know, we have three kids and we came to know the Lord at such and such church and da, 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 da. And then it came his turn to talk. And he said, well, my name is so-and-so. And he said, um, he said, we, uh, we, he said, well, we, we met in Texas. He said, but I'm, I'm originally from, I've lived in Louisiana and I'm from, you know, and she looked at him and she said, she looked at us and she's like, he's from Texas, Texas. She looked at him like, you better not claim Louisiana. You're from Texas. <laughs> the same, the same family, not kidding, not exaggerating. They, she had her dad go out in the yard at their house and shovel some dirt into a UPS size box and send it to her because what's that? Oh, this was in Okinawa. I thought they were in 29 at this time. So when she was in Okinawa and under her hospital bed, she placed this box of Texas dirt so that her babies were born on Texas soil. <laughs> True story. And uh, so maybe those people think they're going to heaven because they're from Texas. But 
Again, the point was that John says, do not claim that because you are children of Abraham, that somehow you, you're, you have a leg up. That's not going to fly here. And in verse 11, he says, um, or verse 10, he says, and even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, it is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the... Somebody say, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Hey, in the beginning of that, it says, he, is that a capital H? Who will baptize you, Shane? Jesus. So Jesus, John, John the Baptist, Old Testament guy, says that Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys have been baptized in the Holy Spirit? How many of you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? How many of you guys say, oh, that baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's not for this church. That's for that church over there where they go shake and they talk about Jesus. Uh, you know, that whole, well, that Holy Spirit weirdness. I don't want to be in Walmart and have the Holy Spirit come on me and start speaking in tongues. I'll be embarrassed. Like that Holy Spirit stuff is not for me. Listen, it's biblical. You need it. You can't live without it. You can't explain it away. We have right here at the very beginning, John the Baptist, Old Testament guy, who tells you one of the things that Jesus is going to do when he comes is to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And if you've not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's this simple. Ask. Ask to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said. But know that you need it. And then he says, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he says here two things that he's going to take his ax and he's going to cut him to the root and his winnowing fan is in his hand. So basically that Jesus and Jesus would spend the next three years rooting through the hypocrisy of religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Jesus would challenge them on every bit of their um, religion that was a religious system that was hypocrisy and was a false system. And, And so John is warning these Pharisees and these Sadducees, who warned you to flee from the, the wrath that was to come? Show fruits worthy of repentance. Don't use excuses in your life. Get right because Jesus is here. The axe is in his hand. The winnowing fan is in his hand. A winnowing fan was uh, an artificial windmaker for separating the chaff and the wheat that was handheld in in Jesus' day. So you would, you would separate the wheat by throwing it into the air and the wind would catch the, the shell or the chaff and would, would, it would fly away and the wheat would fall back to the ground and then you would collect the wheat when you were done and store it in your barns. Well, if you had a day where it was flat and there was no wind blowing, they would have what were called winnowing fans. And you would have somebody with a winnowing fan that was this big, huge fan that would, that would create that wind so that you could work that day and separate the wheat from the chaff. And John says that his winnowing hand, a winnowing fan is in his hand and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's exactly what Jesus went on and did for the next three years. And then in verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it now to be so, 
for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And then when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we have the Trinity of God present here. You know, you see this multiple times in the Bible creation here. This is a good one because people say, oh, there's, there's no Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. You Trinitarians. And, and yet the concept of Trinity is taught throughout the entire Bible, the theology of concept. And here we have Jesus who's in the flesh. He's under the water. He comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit is alighting upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven who belongs to who the father speaks out and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So we have the father, the Holy Spirit and the son all doing different things at the same time, all present, all visible. We have the same thing in creation. We have the father and we have this Holy Spirit that's hovering the waters and Jesus that's speaking into creation where we have the three um, in one together. And here we see this. And so Jesus, he receives the water baptism. And as he comes up, the Holy Spirit alights on him. Why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't get baptized for the remission of sins. He had no sins that needed to be forgiven. He, he, he was baptized as an example for you and I. He was baptized as, as being obedient to the will of the Father for, for his kids and for you and I. And Jesus did it as a matter of obedience and a matter of example. And he and he was and if Jesus needed to be baptized and felt like it was important for him to go to John the Baptist to be baptized, how much more important is it for us to be water baptized? We find two baptisms here in John chap in Matthew chapter three, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and water baptism. And I encourage you guys this morning in both. If you've never been water baptized, if you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you need to, to accomplish both. You know, we can't necessarily manufacture the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, all we can do is ask and you need to ask and you need to receive it. And I received personally the baptism of the Holy Spirit alone in my room by myself. Others received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in, in, you know, in a crowd or in a group. But God's not in a box and God can pour out a spirit upon you anywhere. But you need to ask. And then water baptism, we can manufacture that one. I got a tank back there and I got some water. Or if you don't get water baptized, you know, you're liable to be sitting in church one day and I walk up behind you with a bowl of water and put it in front of you and you've been baptized. Dunk your head in it. So it's easier just to sign up for the water baptism and, and get water baptized. And as you guys know, the water baptism is a symbol of becoming a new creation in Christ. We don't baptize anybody into salvation. You have to already be saved to, to be water baptized. We, we baptize you as an outward sign of what's inwardly taking place in your heart. And the old you goes down and symbolically the old you stays under the water and the new you who's a new creation in Christ rises out of the water. And as, as happened at Jesus' baptism, we pray for you that God's Holy Spirit would alight upon you and remain upon you. Amen.